As far as, the, again, the individual that's depressed, what are some of the common roadblocks that they might find in getting help? Yeah, that's a great question because I think most all of us run into those roadblocks. I can take care of it myself or it, it'll, it'll go, go away. away. If, if only this would change and this would change. So things outside of our control, uh, we, we tend to want to blame other things for how we're feeling versus what's going on inside of us. Those can be big roadblocks. I don't believe in therapy. That's, that's a weakness. Um, and so feeling like having depression is a weakness, it could be a huge roadblock for people, especially men. They tend to be more resistant in getting help. There's a social stigma then. Absolutely. And I think it's getting a little bit better, but it's still there. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello and welcome to this episode of LDS Perspectives. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and with me today is Brian Murdoch. Brian is a licensed clinical mental health counselor specializing in marriage and family counseling and is a certified therapist in EMDR. Brian has worked with adults and adolescents since May of 1992 and has a fondness for helping them find their way in today's turbulent world. He has a passion for working with those who have dealt with trauma in their lives. Brian has been in private practice for five plus years and is co-owner and clinical director of the Redwood Therapy Group in West Jordan, Utah, which is where we are recording our interview today. Uh, Brian enjoys sports music and being a father and husband. He's married to Stephanie and together they have four children. So welcome, Brian, to LDS Perspectives. Thank you, Nick. You are going to be talking with us about issues of mental health in general, but we are going to focus that down a little bit later on the issue of depression. So, But before you turn off the episode thinking this is going to depress you in listening to it, our goal is to discuss the subject in a spirit of education and, and hope in that education. As the backdrop here, Brian, you have with you the book Valley of Sorrow from Elder Morrison. Why don't you tell us about that book and, and why that's kind of going to set the stage? All right. Um, this book, Valley of Sorrow, A Layman's Guide to Understanding Mental Illness, was written by Elder Alexander B. Morrison, who's got emeritus status as a general authority. And the reason I, I have this book, it was actually suggested and given to me by one of my clients that I work with. And he said he deals with chronic depression issues that's uh, very treatment resistant. And he said this book was one of the best books for him to gain an understanding of what he was dealing with and not feeling so alone in his journey with depression. So as I uh, picked up the book and started reading through it, I thought for this population specifically, the LDS population, this is a wonderful book to kind of get an understanding of mental illness, what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. So, so what are some, actually, I, I'd like to start off with a quote from that book because you know sometimes we don't always understand how some of these issues that may seem secular in nature actually affect us in, in an LDS culture. From the book, Elder Morrison writes, I assure you that Latter-day Saints are in no way exempt from the burden of mental illness, either as a victim, caregiver, family member, or friend. In every ward and stake, there are severely depressed men and women, elderly people with failing memories and reduced intellectual capacities. Youth or adults struggle to escape the dark specter of suicide. So what he's saying is, this is nothing that we're exempt from. There's nothing in our covenants, in our doctrine, our theology, that says that we are exempt from mental illness. Absolutely. 
And one of the things we know with, uh, with our beliefs is that we've come to earth to experience all kinds of trials and tribulations, and that's one of the things that helps us gain wisdom and knowledge to take with us. So what, what else in, in this book does he kind of talk about mental illness in general? You know, he goes through several different types of diagnoses, but I think one of the, the most important parts of this book that I think is helpful is to go over what he calls myths and misconceptions with mental illness. If you can indulge me, I'd like to just maybe go over some of those myths and misconceptions. Absolutely. The first one he talks about is the myth that all mental illness is caused by sin. I think as, as people are becoming more aware of mental illness and depression and anxiety, they're starting to get more of a, an understanding that this is not the case. But one of the things that I think is important is we understand that sin can cause a lot of your soul to be racked with guilt and, and all kinds of different feelings. But the, the sinner does not necessarily have a mental illness, nor does the person with mental illness necessarily a sinner, if that makes sense. It doesn't go both ways. It doesn't go both ways. Mental illness is not caused by sin. Second myth and misconception is someone is to blame for mental illness. And I, I think that that becomes the easy go-to for most people, is to try and point the finger, try and find a reason why somebody is suffering from this mental illness. And one of the things that I think is very important in this is that pointing the finger does not necessarily help anybody involved with this. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't fix it at all. Now, the only time I would say that we want to maybe find a reason or maybe a, a, a point of where this mental illness may have started is when we were dealing with trauma that might have caused the anxiety or trauma that might have caused the depression. And then we look at that point of where it started and maybe with that person that it started with, not as a way to blame, but as a way to do treatment to try and deal with the depression or anxiety. So these types of mental illnesses aren't a function of God's justice? No, absolutely not. Our loving Father in Heaven allows us to go through some of these things, again, for our wisdom and our knowledge. And we, as His children, definitely have to go through some of these things in order to learn. Now, do I wish that on anybody? I, no, I don't, because it is a very <laughs> miserable thing. But it, it is something that is not because of our, his justice or our, our shortcomings or sin. Okay, uh, the third myth or misconception is that all people with mental illness need is a priesthood blessing. Now, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of priesthood blessings, and I know that they're incredibly important and they do some amazing things. However, as he talks about in here, there are certain things that we have to deal with using medicine, using different things that the Heavenly Father's allowed people to come up with in this day and age. As a matter of fact, there was an article that I thought was very helpful in talking about this very thing, and it was written by Victor L. Brown, a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy. But if you'll indulge me here, I think this is very important. Uh, he said, I have a strong overall impression from serving 17 months as the presiding bishop of the church under the leadership of President Harold B. Lee. The manner in which President Lee faced up to difficult problems and the wisdom and skill with which he handled controversial matters were an inspiration to us. It seemed that no question could be raised, but that he could recall many scriptures that would answer the question. His memory seemed unfailing. One of the great opportunities of my life has been to receive training from President Lee as well as from other presidents of the church under whom I have served. Now, I'm getting to a point here because I think this is very important. In 1970, Elder Brown said that his physician informed him that he had contracted cancer and that it would be necessary for him to go to the Midwest University Hospital for a special surgery and treatment. He asked President Lee if he might have a priesthood blessing before going. 
The first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve laid their hands on his head in the Salt Lake Temple and gave the requested blessing. This is what he said. Afterward, I turned to President Lee and suggested that to me it seemed there was no longer a need for me to have the operation. I felt that a blessing under the hands of the First Presidency of the Church and the Council of the Twelve was sufficient to heal me. President Lee's response was to me one of the great spiritual teachings of my life. He indicated that it was my responsibility to obtain first whatever medical attention was necessary, after which the Lord would bless me. He said there was no question but that I should do whatever my physician recommended. Sometime after the surgery and treatment, when it appeared that the problem had been completely corrected, my doctor informed me that the mortality rate for that type of cancer I had was extremely high, particularly for those at my relatively young age at the time. Now, approximately 17 years later, there has been no reoccurrence. The counsel President Lee gave me has been vindicated, and the answer to the blessing given to me by the brethren is evident. President Lee's reply of 17 years ago taught me a profound lesson about the relationship of receiving priesthood blessings after doing everything possible that we could do to help ourselves. I read that because President Lee made a good point, that priesthood blessings are important, but we also need to look at what we have available to us. Professional help, those people who have been trained and called to do that kind of work. And that is very evident in the mental health field as well. And Elder Oaks recently in a general conference talk addressed the same thing, if I remember correctly. He talked about the need for including reasonable medical efforts in, in what we're doing as far as priesthood blessings go. Absolutely. Okay, the fourth um, myth or, or misconception, mentally ill persons just lack willpower. Now, I think when we just think that a person needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or, or just pick themselves up and move on and they'll feel better, I think that's incredibly insensitive and, and lacking of a lot of understanding of what true mental illness really is and what it's about. That's like uh, telling somebody who has diabetes or high blood pressure to just will it away. And, and it's just not the way it is. There's usually a brain imbalance or some kind of physical thing that goes on with a mental illness that we can't just will away. As far as how this then can translate into depression, we have other types of depression. We say depression, but it, there's, a, there's lots of different forms of depression. What are some of those different forms of depression that we encounter? Yeah. When you look at depression, you have what we call a major depressive disorder. Okay, and those are the ones that you're typically going to run into and see. And that's where there's a, a major event where the signs and symptoms of depression would show up. Other forms of depression might be dysthymia. Dysthymia is a less intense form of depression, but it's very chronic. It's kind of a, a surface depression that goes on for a long period of time and can be debilitating in its own way and have its own consequences. And the other um, depression that people might know and have heard of is bipolar depression. That has uh, two phases to it, and that can have the mania phase, which is um, euphoric and other things that go with that, that also go with the depression. And that is treated differently with different types of medications. So it's important to be able to distinguish between the two types or the, the several types of depression. So in, in our society today, I mean, not, not just speaking to, to LDS culture, but in society today, what, what percentage of people would you say are affected by depression? Well, I'm going to say that w without having a number right in front of me, I'm going to say that a majority of us will be affected by depression, either having depression ourselves or being around family or friends who are suffering from depression. And so it becomes all of our problem. It becomes something that we as a society have to understand and be able to dispel the myths and, and not be fearful of what that's all about. Is there something as far as the commonality of depression 
that would help people see more fully how prevalent this issue really is. This isn't the common cold of mental health. No. As far as the commonality of depression, I mean, there's there's a couple of different things we want to look at here. Now, what depression isn't, isn't uh, the, the feelings of sadness or it's a regular... A bad day. Exactly. It's, it's not just, you know, I didn't get the part in the play, so now I'm, I'm very sad and, and I don't feel like doing things I wanted to do. Those are in the general realm of just feelings and emotions that we're all going to have. Now, when they start to interfere with family life, our jobs, and they start to interfere with daily living, that's when it crosses the line from just sadness or a general emotion to something that's more diagnosable and needs treatment, needs help. And is even that somewhat flexible or fluid a concept based on who we're talking about? Yes. With each individual, they're going to probably present differently with depression. Some might present with more of a sadness. Others might present with irritability and anger. Others might be withdrawn. Thing about it is, is it can be masked very easily. We can be standing next to somebody thinking at work or at church or wherever, thinking that everything's going okay with them, and they can be really, really struggling inside. And we just really don't know because people tend to mask it. So not everybody's going to be Brian Murdoch with uh, you know master's degrees in this. How how would your average person be able to, or are they able to self-diagnose? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we want to take a look at is let's let's take a look at what some of the signs and symptoms of depression are. And I think that way we can understand what we're looking for. And as we go along with this, those people who are closest to the person who's depressed are probably going to be the ones that pick up on it first and foremost. Let's talk a little bit about what, what might come with major depression. Feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Okay, that might be a bleak outlook. Nothing will ever get better and there's nothing you can do to improve your situation. We all know what a feeling of hopelessness might be, but when that consistently is there for you, uh, the world starts to get pretty dark. Loss of interest in daily activities, okay? We don't take care anymore about former hobbies, or we don't care about pastimes or social activities, or even sex. You've lost your ability to feel joy and pleasure, okay? Appetite and weight changes. Now, there's, there's interesting things with uh, depression and appetite, because with, with depression, you can either have an increase in appetite and overeat, or you can have a decrease in appetite where you're not eating at all. And so weight gain or a loss of weight is something more more than 5% of your body weight is what we're going to look at in a month. Okay. In a month at a time. So there are certain metrics to that. Yes, absolutely. Um, sleep is very similar too. You can either oversleep or you can not sleep. Insomnia, especially waking up in early hours of the morning or oversleeping. So those would be things we look for as well. Anger or irritability feeling agitated, restless, or even violent. Your tolerance level is very low. Your temper is short. And everything and everyone gets on your nerves. You know, I'm, I'm almost fearing at this point that some people are going to get the WebMD problem and think that just because they're hearing this stuff that they, they're loaded with it. Right. And, and the, the disclaimer here is we've got to understand that all of us meet the criteria for almost any disorder right. at any given time. Okay, it's when it starts to become more of a chronic issue and it starts to interfere with life, daily activities, our, our relationships, our jobs, those kinds of things. That's when we, we seek out the help. So the persistency is would be what, a month? Um, it depends. Usually if you're looking at depression, we're looking at a pretty constant thing of two to three months. And then we would probably say, okay, you probably need to get in and, and see somebody. Probably want to start paying attention to it yourself within that month yeah. period of time. We're also looking for loss of energy, the fatigue, the sluggishness, self-loathing and self-esteem issues that go with that, reckless behavior, 
and concentration types problems, okay? Hard to focus, making decisions, remembering things. And then even unexplained aches and pains, okay? And that's one thing that people may not recognize is there's a, there can be an actual physical... Like a psychosomatic exactly. kind of effect. Exactly. Our brains tell us to feel pain, whether there's a, a reason, a physical reason to or not, but the pain is still there. Our minds, our brains are very, very powerful that way. When you're given this list of different personality traits and, and saying that it's persistent for a couple of months, are you then kind of inviting people then to kind of, again, self-diagnose this? Are, you, are we saying this, this is okay for husbands and, or spouses, I should say, to analyze this in other people? Or is there some danger to even doing that? No, I think it's important for our spouses and family members to be aware because they tend to recognize it sometimes even before the individual will. They see a change in that individual and they see the behavior starting, maybe the isolation, maybe the irritability that doesn't fit with that personality. And they may be the first ones to recognize what's going on. And so if, if there's hopefully a good give and take in that relationship, the spouse will be able to say, hey, this is, this is what I'm noticing. What's going on? What are you feeling? And that may be the first level of, of intervention. What we're doing here is by giving these tools instead of seeing someone that's lazy or giving up on life or whatever, that what we're saying is, these are the warning signs that there's something else wrong, that it's not something they're choosing. They're not turning into a lazy person or someone that's divorceable or any of those kinds of things. This is something else. Right. Absolutely. This is something that is a diagnosable illness. When we look at this, we wouldn't just uh, you know, call somebody lazy that might have uh, any other physical ailment. Oh, you're lazy because you got cancer. See, it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense that way, does it? When we start to put in other types of diagnoses, and that's the same thing. This is, a, this is an illness that needs to be treated. So with that, let's talk first about the people that are personally experiencing depression. And let's say they're able to even recognize that they're depressed. What kind of counsel or what kind of suggestions can you offer that person who either clinically or has self-diagnosed as having depression? If it gets to a point where now it's, they're noticing because it's, it's caused problems in their relationship or at work, then... My first suggestion would be that the awareness of it is, is a, a big step. Then seeking out help, whether it's through a, a counselor, somebody that, that they trust, where they can sit down and they can talk about what's going on in their life. Now, if it doesn't seem to be getting better at that point, then they, they really do need to seek out professional help. Because depression can be a, a life-threatening illness, as we know, with the suicide rates and, and where they are that it's a very serious and, and can be a life-threatening illness. As far as, the, again, the individual that's depressed, what are some of the common roadblocks that they might find in getting help? Yeah, that, that's a great question because I think most all of us run into those roadblocks. I can take care of it myself or it, it'll, it'll go, go away. away. If, if only this would change and this would change. So things outside of our control, uh, we, we tend to want to blame other things for how we're feeling versus what's going on inside of us. Those can be big roadblocks. I don't believe in therapy. That's, that's a weakness. Um, and so feeling like having depression is a weakness, it could be a huge roadblock for people, especially men. They tend to be more resistant in getting help. There's a depression. social stigma then. Absolutely. And I think it's getting a little bit better, but it's still there. Well, one of the things that we have heard in some cases is that one thing is a problem. In actuality, it's really the symptom of the problem. For example, let's say pornography use in, in the world has, I guess you could say, exploded with the Internet. Mm -hmm. 
And within the church, this is a common issue that comes up from people. Is pornography use, can that be symptomatic of depression? Yes. Usually when we start talking about addictive type behaviors like pornography use and those kinds of addictions, most of the time it's not about what you would think it would be about. Okay, It's about emotional dysregulation and trying to self-medicate to feel different in the moment. But then it grows and becomes its own set of problems. But absolutely, those kinds of addictions, those kinds of behaviors, whether it's pornography, substances, any of the eating, I mean, any of those things that kind of change the brain chemistry for a second, people will seek out when they're feeling down or depressed or wanting to change their mood in that moment. Extreme Netflix binge watching, maybe? Absolutely. Like <laughs> TV. I mean, it can be anything to try and change how you feel in the moment. So self-medicating is a big red flag. Okay. Absolutely. Now, as far as let's kind of switch gears now to the people, and this is probably where people might put themselves more commonly, is the person that's being affected by someone else's depression. Whether in an LDS context, that's a home teaching family, whether that's a family member, it could be a bishop seeing people in his ward that, ah, what do I do now? I, I see depression all over the place. Now what? How do, how do you help that person who is is kind of maybe what we might call experiencing collateral damage from depression? Right. I think that's important because, you know, as we look at it, depression, as it becomes more socially accepted, I guess, that diagnosis. Maybe even socially aware. Yeah. More people become more socially aware. They understand that that it not only affects the sufferer, but that it, it affects those people that are around him or her, right? So effects on a spouse. The spouse, like we've talked about, is probably the first and foremost to be affected by that. A lot of times people are good at hiding signs. That spouse is the one that's going to recognize it probably before anybody else. The spouse definitely is the one that's going to be more invested in that depressed person feeling happy. Okay, But there are some things that come along with that. So now over time, a spouse, especially if treatment's not working or something's not working and this isn't changing or that person's not willing to get the help, then a spouse can actually become depressed as well, living in that environment over and over and, and it can lead to depression in the spouse. That spouse can withdraw and start to withdraw from social life too. Now, if it starts to interfere with the job, well, guess what? Now there might be more anxiety that's placed on that because one feels like they have to take care of the financial situation as well. It can be a real snowball kind of a, an effect. There's a lot of slack to pick up somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it becomes, it becomes almost contagious in a sense if that person is not getting the help they need because it certainly does affect especially a spouse. Now you start looking at not only spouse, but now you have children. If you have children involved, children are very malleable, which is great because it helps them bounce back from traumas. But kind of on the flip side of that, the problem with that is that they may be more susceptible to negative emotional environments in the first place. One of the things we see with children who have depressed parents or depressed parent is they need more positive encouragement and attention as they grow, and the children are less likely to thrive when one or both parents are depressed. Okay, So children may take on more of the responsibility at home, which makes it so they grow up too early. And that's not fair for them. Um, they also may take on a role of this is my fault or responsibility for that. Right. And, and as we know, kids don't have the, the life experience to know that, hey, I don't have to own that. So they, they tend to take that on and try and make it better. And when they can't, they feel a lot of guilt or shame. What are some suggestions that you can have, even for families or whatever the relationship basis is for someone experiencing depression, 
How do you help them to not see depression as this anchor that's going to drag down everyone? You know, I think first, both with the spouse and with the children, they need to have some some support, okay? Whether it's somebody from their church congregation, whether it's a, a trusted family member, whether it's professional help. But if they can get to a point where they understand this isn't their fault, this isn't something that they can just fix, and learning some skills on how to support that person, then all of a sudden they can let go of maybe some of that burden that they're carrying. Okay, I understand that this is an illness that they're dealing with. These are some ways I can support, but I don't have to own that illness. I don't have to fix that because it's not in my control. And that creates a a helplessness if they do feel like they have to fix it and it's not working. Now, there's a a phrase that's used quite a bit in, in therapy, especially around depression, and that is this term of something being a toxic statement or a toxic feeling that people have when they're around this. What are some of those toxic expressions, those toxic emotions that people have both as the individual that's experiencing it mm-hmm. and, and the one that's kind of being around it? Well, I think when we start talking about toxic, you look at kind of the, the definition of that, something that's, that's poisonous or that poisons the soul or poisons our, who we are. And so those, those negative statements, so the individual might have the negative statement of life isn't worth living, or they'd be better off without me. Or, you know, if only this were happening, criticism gets thrown at family members. Those are what I would say would be toxic statements from that individual who's suffering from depression. Toxic statements from other people are, it might even be as benign as, you know what, if you just smile every day, you're going to feel better, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or, or these things that that feel so like the person just doesn't understand. They just, they don't get this. And so, they think I'm lazy or they think I'm doing this on purpose. And that's really uh, unfortunate too because as we know the suffering from somebody who's got depression, uh, nobody would choose that kind of suffering. And so to think that they can just choose not to have it, any statement like that would be very toxic. Well, sometimes it even feels like maybe a compliment might seem toxic, which makes the whole situation kind of difficult. Right. So, so how else can we navigate this issue? What are some, some do-nots maybe? I, I think... Giving advice on how to snap out of it, we might want to we might want to try and forego that. Is advice at all any good? I think if they, if they request advice, advice is great. When we give unsolicited advice, I think we're we're really wading into some <laughs> muddy waters. Yeah, and and it can tend to push them a little bit further away. Well, I'm not even going to talk to you because all you're going to do is tell me stuff that doesn't work for me. So if I, if if there was an individual then that was depressed or a spouse of someone that was depressed, and they came to the conclusion that they needed to seek professional help. Mm-hmm. There are different ways that help is administered for people that are depressed. Let's first talk about the idea of involving medications, because mm-hmm. there's a whole separate set of myths about medications. Absolutely. So what, what might people encounter in a professional therapeutic environment with respect to medication? Okay. Well, like you said, there are different levels of treatment for this. There's medication, there's the psychotherapy, okay, and then there's maybe support groups, kind of the three levels that I would talk about. Medication, I have kind of my own analogy of what I think medication does. I look at medication a lot like a pair of reading glasses, okay? So if I have a pair of reading glasses because my eyes just can't focus on, on the words of a book, you know, I put those reading glasses on and now it helps my eyes to focus on the book. But guess what? I still have to have the skill of knowing how to read, I still have to have the motivation to pick up the book. The glasses aren't going to read the book for me. And I kind of look at medication like that pair of glasses. Okay, 
We put on, we, we take the medication, it might get us over that hump of feeling a little bit better. But we still have to learn the skills of how to cope and deal if it comes back and what we're doing to keep our lives moving in a, in a healthy way. And we still have to have the motivation to learn those skills. So medication, I think, alone can, can definitely be helpful and bring that mood up, but I think there's things that need to go with that. And I think the statistics bear out that medication along with psychotherapy is the, is the best combination. So non-medicine-based, mm-hmm. what are some of the options that people have and, and how, how well are they received, good, good or bad? You know, the, the options are there's lots of different types of, of therapy. CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, is shown to be very effective in depression. And that's where you're looking at how thoughts, feelings, and behaviors interact and how to change the thought, which will change the feelings and change the behaviors. And if you change the behaviors, it changes those. So that interplay, the thinking errors, the, you know, the, the things that we tell ourselves that, that add to that. And, and we know that the brain has a, a, a chemistry that can be changed through thoughts and, and through behaviors. And if we change those and we work really hard at that and understanding the, the negative thoughts, we can change brain chemistry. And, and we, we can sit here all day and talk about the different sure. types. But the ones that I tend to use are the cognitive behavioral, but also I look at EMDR therapy, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And how I look at uh, using that therapy specifically is, uh, especially if this is a trauma-based depression or whatever the, the problem is, and, and you can almost trace everything back to some type of a trauma, whether it's a big T trauma, a major issue, Versus a little T trauma, something that we might brush off as not being that big a deal, but had a huge effect on us. And the cumulative effect of little T traumas. EMDR therapy tends to work really well for that kind of problem. And, and to the person that maybe thinks that these therapies are somehow uh, in conflict with or don't sit well with LDS practices and culture, or maybe see it as something that we just don't do mm-hmm. for whatever reason, is there a response to that? Yes, because I know in some communities, even EMDR therapy was looked at a little bit down on. And one of the things I say is, let's let's look at the research and why it does what it does. This isn't dealing with any kind of mystic kinds of things. We're talking about brain chemistry. We're talking about how the brain works. We're talking about eye movement, which is very similar to REM sleep eye movement and how the brain reprocesses. And when we look at how Heavenly Father set up our bodies and our minds and our brains... He, he made them to heal. So if I cut my arm and I go in to see a doctor, they might stitch it up or they might give me an antibiotic for that, but they don't heal my body. My body heals itself. The brain is designed the same way. It's designed to heal. And sometimes there's things that get in the way. Using the therapies that we have to maybe unblock that or unfreeze where that traumatic event happened to allow the brain to do what it was designed to do by our Father in Heaven is a wonderful thing. And I think Heavenly Father has put a lot of things and a lot of research and a lot of great people down here to find those ways. Last question. How, how does something like depression manifest itself with respect to our spirituality? Sometimes when people experience depression, they, maybe they feel unmotivated to do their scripture reading, their prayers, they're going to church, they're visiting teaching, whatever you want to call it. In what ways is depression affecting spirituality? I think one of the biggest ways that I look at is when we look at spirituality and our beliefs, what is one of the biggest parts of that? That's hope and faith, right? And when we're depressed, what's happening in our minds and brains? Hope is gone. 
the faith that anything better can be there is gone. And then it becomes, well, I'm not worth the effort or all those self-esteem kinds of statements start to come into our mind. And we tend to say, well, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. I, I can't see any hope there. I can't see how I can believe in something when I'm just feeling this way. And spirituality takes a real hit yeah. with that. So again, let's circle around to the book. It's called Valley of Sorrows right. by Elder Morrison. That's a good source. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other sources that we might be able to point people to that are looking for more? You know, I think that one of the most important, and when we're looking at a depression and finding some support systems, like I said before, I think family members can look for uh, reasons or ways to, to get support. There's a lot of different support. Some of them are things like the National Alliance of Mental Illness, okay? So N-A-M-I, NAMI, some people have probably heard of that, or National Institute of Mental Health. Um, there's also Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, Families for Depression Awareness, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, the Family Resource Network. There's many, many different resources that we can find out there that can be very helpful. Another good resource is when you talk to your bishop, you know, LDS Family Services. They have resources and people that can help as well. But there's a lot of different people out there. And one of the things that I always tell my clients when they come in to see me is that I don't think that I can work with everybody who walks through my door. There has to be a good fit, and there has to be that level of trust and willingness to, to work with that person. And I say, always find that fit. And, and I think when there is that right fit, then things can really start to, to happen and work. And, and I think the biggest takeaway that we, we might be able to offer people is that this is not a hopeless thing, that there's resources, there's opportunities to improve. And even for those people that have been around or in depressed relationships for 10 years, this is something that can still be fixed. There's no time frame. There's no uh, statute of limitations right. on overcoming depression. Right. There's there's no certain line that you don't come back from. It, yeah. it, and even when there's chronic depression that, that seems to be treatment resistant, there's still things that can bring hope and, and help in that situation. And that's one thing that I want to state over and over. There is hope. There is treatment. There is brighter days for those people who are are just struggling with this very, very difficult illness. So we'll take some of those links that you just talked about as resources and we'll put them as links in the posting of this episode at ldsperspectives.com. I want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk to us about this issue of depression that seems to actually be, as Zelda Morrison put it, something that we're not exempt from as members of the church. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure and any way I can help. Thanks. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. I did read this one account of three English women traveling across the plains together by themselves in a wagon. They didn't have husbands with them. They had children, and they were just laughing about it because they were used to genteel work, not pioneer kind of things. This was all foreign to them, and she was just laughing at what a sight they may have been to everybody else. Right, right, and I, I think there was there were elements of, of joy and, and of laughter and of, of of adventure, and and I've seen these landscapes that seem so foreign and yet at times so majestic. That was a historic fact that came out of these journals that I I hadn't known. I, I had this sort of really based in the the Martin and Willie Handcart Company's view of it's like they took over the whole story, and I don't think their their story really typifies much of the pioneer's experience. 
LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.